When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, the world headquarters of common sense. Though I'm sorry to say, despite my entreaties to the contrary yesterday, there are still plenty of people out there not exactly excelling themselves in the intelligence department. Numpties, I call them. There are people advertising fuel for sale on Facebook. There are other people pulling knives on one another on petrol station forecourts. And there are hordes of idiots still blaming the shortage of everything on a lack of HGV drivers, which is clearly not the case, which we explained yesterday was not the case, uh, and which we told you is for a whole variety of reasons, not least the fact that the DVLA is not working, not least the fact that ridiculous EU laws were put in uh, to make it much more difficult to become HGV drivers, and the cost itself of being one. Uh, That is the problem. This morning we'll be surveying the scene out there on the roads, and this morning uh, they were busier than ever, with the help of Andrew Bridgen MP and Howard Cox from Fair Fuel UK. But of course, we need your help as well. Tell us what you're seeing, what you're hearing, and where you are going, if indeed you're able to go anywhere, because for a place that's got a shortage of lorries and a shortage of lorry drivers. There's an awful lot of traffic out there, isn't there? 0344 499 1000. Laura Dodsworth is here as well with her take on the row at the Labour Party conference over women's rights. I mean, after all, it shouldn't be that difficult to explain what a woman is, should it? But the Labour Party can't seem to quite figure it out. Maybe it's because they've got people like Angela Rayner running things. She'll also bring us the latest, of course, from the front line of the vaccinating children in school scenarios as we hear this morning that Bath University is amongst one of the many places where they're starting to treat people who haven't been vaccinated vaccinated slightly differently from people who have. That can't be a good thing. Kevin O'Sullivan is going to be here as well, uh, ahead of his show tonight at 7 o'clock, with his take on the James Bond excitement going on around the release of No Time to Die. And we'll also be checking in with Bruce Williamson from Rail Futures after the government stripped South Eastern of its rail franchise after what they're calling a serious breach of good faith. 0344 499-1000. Also, Professor Carol Sikora uh, is going to be talking to us about why finally the NHS has decided there's no more need for social distancing in hospitals and they can actually put beds closer together rather than further apart. Guess what? That means they can get more beds into the wards and that means they can get more patients into the beds. That means they can get more patients into the hospital and they can actually treat people. What a revelation that'll be. 0344-499-1000. Donna Harvey will bring us the latest on the R. Kelly conviction as well. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, it's been quite a week, hasn't it? Because on the one hand, you've got the rather ludicrous spectacle of the Labour Party conference going on, uh, which can only be described as bizarre. No more bizarre, of course, than Julie Hartley Brewer drinking with Angela Rayner and Sadiq Khan last night. Two people uh, who won't ever, ever answer any query that we put to them uh, officially and who won't ever actually appear on this radio station. How very strange. But also, uh, we've got uh, the prospect tomorrow, of course, of Sir Keir Starmer trying to hold it all together, trying to present a united front, trying to prove that the Labour Party can indeed be a 
good opposition to the Tories. But clearly at the moment, that is not what they are doing because they're not making much noise about the fuel crisis. They're not making much noise about the energy crisis. In fact, they're not really doing anything that anybody who votes cares about. Let's speak, though, to Andrew Bridging, Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire, because he'll be able to put us in the picture, I'm sure. Uh, people are still queuing up for petrol. You really shouldn't be doing that. Please stop doing it. And there will not be a shortage. It's as simple as that. Andrew, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. So here we, here we you're are. You're absolutely right. There's, there's been a joint uh, statement by the, uh, the government and the, uh, and the fuel suppliers. There is no shortage of fuel coming from the refineries. There's no shortage of fuel at the distribution centres. All of this has been brought around by uh, the media hype around that there is a shortage of about 150 tanker drivers in the whole of the UK. And this has been going on for months. Uh, people haven't noticed uh, any disruption. But what it can't cope with is spikes in demand of three, four hundred percent of uh, panic buying. Yeah. The fact is, the fact is, Mike, and your listeners will appreciate that modern distribution networks, uh, just-in-time deliveries of food and other resources, uh, they're all geared up for normal uh, demand. And if, if we all went out this morning and bought an extra loaf of bread, there'd be no bread on the shelves this no. afternoon. Um, you know, it was, it was toilet rolls, ludicrously toilet rolls at the beginning of the COVID uh, epidemic that went into, that was the, uh, the panic buying. And there was no shortage of those either. And um, I'm going to be waiting to fill up uh, until the end of the week when the fuel stations will be empty and everyone's filled their tanks up and uh, the price will be cheaper. Well, exactly. It I seems to me to be a pretty simple thing to solve. Surely, sure, surely, uh, if the uh, if the petrol stations wanted to sort of do something sensible, they could have a minimum buy, a purchase, and a, and a maximum purchase. You know, make it no less than twenty pounds, no more than thirty. I went to a place on Sunday night. There was no queue. Uh, it was thirty pounds only, and everybody was doing uh, what would I would consider to be something sensible. Absolutely, um, I put some fuel in yesterday in Ashby de la Zouche. Uh, I could have filled up. Uh, there was no limit uh, at the filling station, but I only needed half a tank. That'll last me more than a week. Uh, leave some for somebody else. Well, that's right. Um, and and as, as you say, I mean, it just is it is unfortunate that this has happened. But of course, you've got plenty of people blaming Brexit for it. Um, Brexit might be a partial issue, but it's not really the reason why this has happened, is it? Well, it must be Brexit. That's the reason why there are 125,000 lorry vac driver vacancies in Poland. That's because of Brexit as well. Right. And there's 60,000 drivers short in, in, in Germany. The problem is it's, it's an industry which has suffered with very poor working conditions and esteem. Uh, and also uh, wages have been suppressed for a very long time by us constantly importing migrant labour to fill those roles and we haven't been training enough. On top of that, you've got 40,000 people who weren't able to take their tests during the COVID uh, epidemic. Uh, and we also brought in the ludicrous, uh, well, we had to bring in the European uh, driver CPC, which is another barrier to re-entry to the industry from people who've been out of the industry. And let's get these facts straight. We are not short of qualified HGV drivers no. in the UK. We have, we have more than twice as many people qualified as we need. The fact is that they no longer want to work in the industry for all the reasons I've just yeah. outlined. Well, that's... There's, almost no, there's almost no women in the industry because uh, of the uh, washing and toileting facilities and the lack of secure parking for overnight stays. 
these these things have all got to change if we're going to sort this problem out. Yes, absolutely right. And I mean, why can the government not just do away with that uh, CPC qualification? Because it is an EU rule, which we no longer have to presumably uh, adhere to. And why can't they get the DVLA back to work? Because my understanding of that, and I raised this about a month ago, Andrew, is that the 17 storey building, which is housing the DVLA and all of its civil servants in Swansea, is practically empty. Um, you're absolutely right on those two points. But DVLA first, that's been a running sore and a, a constant uh, amount of casework for just general DVLA delays mm. in getting people's licences sorted out uh, for all of the COVID pandemic. I believe they're all still working from home. Um, people tell me they're ringing up for their hate. I actually had a, a tanker driver who can't drive at the moment because he's waiting for his licence uh, to be renewed with uh, DVLA. And he says, when I ring up, no one answers the phone. Right. And that's what I've been hearing for uh, over 12 months. I've written to Grant Shapps about that one. And I spoke to Grant Shapps at the weekend about the driver CPC and suspending that for 12 months, which would be a, a really mm. sensible thing to do. Unfortunately, that will require primary legislation. That means Parliament would have to sit and we'd have to debate it and pass legislation in Parliament to, to lift that. Uh, and I suggested that we... we have a recall of Parliament and get on with it. Unfortunately, we are in the conference season and there's sort of an agreement between all the parties that we don't do that during conference season. Well, never mind the petrol crisis. Just carry on with your conference worrying about whether you've got cervix or not. Is that what you're telling me? Well, the Labour Party conference is, <laughs> is laughing, uh, quite honestly. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but um, it was reported yesterday that uh, despite the uh, cocaine and rent boy scandal and leaving Parliament under that cloud, and then the bullying uh, report oh, yes. from Parliament about Keith Vaz. He's, uh, he's on, a, on the schedule to speak at a Labour conference tomorrow uh, at Hindus for Labour. Tremendous. I think there are probably more Hindus are not for Labour now, thank goodness. Yeah. Um, why is that man still in the Labour Party? Well, that's a very good I question. Mean, it's a very, very yeah. good question. You might ask that question about quite a few of them, because I've also been seeing reports from uh, various Labour members that there are still groups up there uh, who are having meetings uh, and throwing out uh, Jewish members of the party because they're not the right believers or something. I'm not quite sure why, but there's clearly a problem with anti-Semitism. They still haven't sorted out. The problem with extremist groups is it's a bit like, uh, you know, they're never pure enough, so they always have encourages and and becoming more and more extreme. Uh, and I'm afraid that's the, I think that's the death cycle that the Labour Party has got itself into. Keir Starmer clearly wants to bring the Labour Party back towards the centre ground of politics, mm. which I think is, is sensible. But unfortunately, he's inherited the most left-wing parliamentary party because those, a lot of those MPs were selected by his predecessor, mm. Jeremy Corbyn, and he can't get rid of them. Yeah. Jeremy Corbyn, who also thought it was a great idea that, uh, that Angela Rayner had called uh, you all scum. Yes, well, I mean, I, when you can't play the ball, you have to play the man, don't you? And uh, I don't think that's going to go down well with the majority of people in this country who we know voted Conservative at the last general election. And uh, it's no way to conduct politics. Uh, it's the politics of the, of the gutter, and it's pretty desperate mm. stuff. And people will see it for what it is, Mike, there's no yeah. doubt about it. Well, you've also got your own party conference coming up the following week, of course. Um, a lot of people who did vote Conservative uh, in the last election have told me um, that they'll never do it again because they're very disappointed with Boris Johnson, very disappointed with what he did during the COVID pandemic, very disappointed with this green agenda that he's got, um, and not entirely sure uh, that he's as Conservative as he makes out. 
Well, we've got some concessions on the uh, on the energy policy. I think for the first time in decades, we're going to have an energy policy, and we're going to be going for nuclear energy for the basal load, which is zero carbon, and that opens up lots of possibilities, especially for Rolls Royce, just up the road from my constituency in Derby, with their modular nuclear reactors, which will be be able to not only use in the UK but also sell around the world, and that's going to be something that could lead to a huge manufacturing resurgence across the Midlands and the North. Uh, I, I don't think nuclear, modular nuclear reactors are things that people are going to buy from China because they're a bit cheaper. Well, hopefully not anyway. Well, let's, I hope, think they're let's gonna, hope not. I think they're going to want, they're going to want the Rolls-Royce. Well, you'd like to think so. But a more pressing matter for an awful lot of ordinary people, Andrew, is the price of energy and the price that it's going to be come October. Because we know, even before this latest gas problem that we've got, uh, that prices were going to jump by between 10 and 30%. And an awful lot of people are going to find themselves unable to pay those bills. They are. And that's why I'm, I'm completely opposing the cut to universal credit. The, I believe the government will U-turn on this. The, the £20 across the board will go, but the money will stay in, in universal credit and the taper will be changed to allow people on that uh, benefit to retain more of the money that they earn. Uh, and it'll actually what we're going to end up with well, is the universal credit where it should have been introduced before George Osborne took the money out of it. Mm. What we've seen during the pandemic is that it is a benefit system that actually works and has protected people through difficult times, that's what our benefit system's for. And we're not going to be, we won't, the government cannot politically cut that benefit without giving concessions because we, we can't balance the books of the country on the backs of the poorest in our society. That's just wrong, Mike. No, I get that. But should we not also be using this as an opportunity to press for more storage of our own uh, energy and more, um, more sort of, you know, resourcing of our own energy in our own country? Well, Energy security relies on diversity and diversity alone. So we, the renewables are all well and good. But as we've seen, when the wind's not blowing, um, you know, we still want to put the kettle on and, and keep our houses warm. The, the Greens, uh, some of the fanatical Greens, would like us to, to be in a society where we're energy poor. If we're going to go carbon neutral, uh, I want us to be in a, in, a, in a position where we're actually energy rich. Uh, and that's got to include a big chunk of, uh, of nuclear. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And what about what Andrew Bailey said? The uh, uh, governor of the Bank of England made a speech last night in which he was cautioning that interest rates will have to rise to tame escalating prices. Uh, he says the economy is very weak. He was painting a very, very downbeat picture uh, of the next few months and possibly years. Well, you, you have to remember that part of the um, one of the tools of the Bank of England to control uh, interest rates and inflation is... Is, is, is what they say they're going to do in the future and whether they do or not, it has an effect uh, one way or, or another. So um, they, they use these statements to influence people's behaviour. But we are, we are entering a period coming out of COVID. We're going to have 8% plus economic growth, the highest in the G7 in this country. Um, also, what you've got to bear in mind is governments all around the world, us included, have created a lot of new money to pay for the COVID crisis that's in circulation. Uh, there are only finite goods and services. So that is in itself, there's more money chasing the same amount of assets and goods. Uh, that's inflationary. So we, we're going to in, uh, go into a, a period of higher inflation. 
uh, to an extent for governments who've borrowed a lot of money, that's that's a very viable policy because the only way to get rid of that debt is to inflate it away. Yes, but does that not mean, though, that we're left with a country which is very highly taxed now and also uh, very high in, in um, expenditure and, and, and in costs? So the cost of living's going up, taxes are going up. You know, it's not a very comfortable place for a lot of people. Well, no, no society can tax itself to prosperity. We've, we're going to have hopefully the highest economic growth in the G7. We need to keep that going. And if we raise taxes uh, coming out of COVID, I think we're, we're going to suppress that economic growth, uh, n- not allow it to, uh, to grow us out of the uh, economic situation we've, we've been put in, effectively. Yes, effectively. But uh, as of April of next year, uh, you and I um, and everybody else are going to be paying more tax. And I do worry about this. And I, I didn't vote for the increase in NICs uh, on any occasion. Um, I've got severe concerns that the uh, £12 billion it's going to raise is going to go into the NHS. <coughs> I'm, I've got very grave concerns that we'll ever get it back out to go to social care at yeah. any time in the future. And I think the government could well be, if they're not careful and don't manage and reform the way we're delivering health services and social care, they'll be coming back in two years' time saying we need another. Yeah. Um, and as I pointed out to the Chief Whip a few weeks ago, if, uh, if socialist economic policies worked, I'd be a socialist. I'd be a member of the Labour Party. <laughs> and the fact, well. the, fact, the fact is that they don't work for them. And if we try and put them put them into practice, they won't work for us either, Mike, surprisingly. Because, well, to be honest, they don't work anywhere in the world, do they? Well, I'm glad to hear you say that, Andrew. But I wish there was more like you who would actually tell Boris Johnson that that's what we all agree with as well. Stay where you are, though, because we're going to come back to you. I want to talk to you a little bit about the COVID situation, uh, the unlocking further of the economy, uh, the vaccine passports issue and all manner of things to do uh, with our freedoms, which we want back and we want them back now. Uh, this is Talk Radio. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Andrew Bridgens with us, Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire. A couple of good uh, tweets to read out to you. One from Paul here. He says, Mike, I've got two gallons of petrol. We'll swap for a doctor's appointment, uh, which is rather good. And Ned says, I'm a fully qualified HGV Class 1 driver and could do agency work to help out around my day-to-day job. But my COC has expired and it's over £400 to take the course. So spend uh, this as per uh, Andrew Bridgens said on your show problem solved says Ned in West Yorkshire so I mean there are easy problems that can be fixed by this government Andrew I just wish that they would get on with them and do them in the short term because there's not much point bringing in drivers from Europe because as you said there aren't any drivers in Europe that can come anyway Uh, and there's not much point sending in the army is there? Well there are hundreds of thousands of people who are qualified to drive these uh, heavy trucks Um, some of them have retired from the industry I mean, some people, quite honestly, Mike, they, they had 18 months of furlough, were approaching retirement and decided they didn't want to go back. Mm. Um, I'm sure that if we lifted some of the bureaucratic burden, some of those would be willing to do two or three days a week. Uh, we would help out until we get the next tranche of drivers through the, uh, th- through the testing. I mean, the facts are that I raised this seven years ago and tried to get it into the apprentice scheme with the government. Unfortunately, the minister was Nick Bowles and her boss at the time was Anna Subri. Mm. And, and they, uh, they were quite happy for us to rely on Eastern European labour to drive our trucks and not train our own drivers. Um, at that time, we were 50,000 drivers short seven years ago, six years ago. 
and, the, and there were only 2% of the workforce in, in HGV drivers who were under 25. Now, we're 100,000 drivers short. There's 55, uh, the average age is 55. And there's only 1% yeah. of the uh, drivers and workforce that are under 25. I mean, it's just got worse and, mm. and worse and worse. And these 5,000 short-term visas, A, there's a, shortage, a massive shortage of drivers on the continent anyway. And B, for me, it's, it's, it's like it's not going to solve the problem. It's a sticking plaster. It's a bit like a, a lifetime alcoholic just saying, I'll nip back to the bar for one more drink and mm. that's it. Yes. Um, it's not going to solve the problem. No, that's right. And it does seem as though we have a government and have had governments in the past for the last decade, really. And I'm afraid they've all been Tory governments, Andrew, who just haven't really planned for the future. You know, they've, they've been sort of sticking plasters all over the place on all sorts of things like energy, like this HGV driver problem, like the sort of um, uh, the various issues with, uh, you know, the green energy uh, idea that they want to now try and push forward, which isn't really going to work either. You know, all of these things aren't working. And everyone I speak to says, well, we've been doing, we've been dealing with this for years. And that's one of the problems um, that I always encounter. It's, it's part of the political situation is that governments live between general elections. Um, they're very, very uh, negative to do something which in the short term, it may be unpopular, but is in the long term interest of the country. Mm. Um for the reasons that we have a general election cycle every four or five years and people just want to get re-elected. No, we, need, we need to get cross-party support uh, for issues that affect our country. And, of course, that's that's very hard to do when you're, you're dealing with a hard-left Labour opposition. And I'm being very generous actually calling them an opposition most of the time. Mm, I think that's right. What about the vaccine passport question? I spoke to Geoffrey Clifton-Brown yesterday. He wasn't certain uh, that you could promise me that they won't be brought in uh, in England. What do you think? Well, I, I won't vote for them. Um, I've, I've made my views clear. Um, the answer is that over 80% of us, and it's probably 90% of us now, are vaccinated, most double vaccinated. If, if that gives us protection and uh, we, we're not going to get the virus and not going to transmit it, then we don't need vaccine passports. And if we can still get the virus and still transmit it, then vaccine passports are no use anyway, are they? Well, exactly. There's no argument that actually makes any sense. And yet both Scotland and Wales are bringing them in. Well, yes. Well, when your political opponents are, are making a mistake, it's rude to interrupt them and... Uh, and Nicola Sturgeon uh, can, can do what she wants in her own fiefdom. But, I mean, whether the Scots like the idea of that. Um, I have been amazed, Mike, throughout this pandemic, um, how easily the British people have given up freedoms that were hard fought for for hundreds of years. Mm. Uh, and, of course, as always, the, the powers that be that have taken these draconian measures over our lives, uh, many of them being implemented by people who are completely unaccountable and unelected, they don't want to give them up. Surprise, surprise. Yes. And neither will they. Uh, and I think that's the main point. Andrew, listen, we've got to run. Thank you very much indeed. Andrew Bridging, Conservative MP for North West and Leicestershire, making an awful lot more sense uh, than many of the people in the Cabinet right now. Phil says, listening to you on talk radio, you make me want to vote Conservative again, Andrew. However, there are so many disappointments. I didn't vote Green. I'm 75 and being conned over social care and too many areas of government are not fit for purpose. I think that uh, is very much the case uh, that a lot of people would put to Boris Johnson. Because it may well be that this is a week to bash Labour, but the Tories haven't got much to boast about right now, have they? 
The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Lots of you getting in touch to say uh, some very interesting things about the problems with HGV drivers and why they are not simply about a shortage of HGV drivers. That is simply not the case. Let's talk now to Howard Cox, though, because uh, he's the founder of Fair Fuel UK, knows a thing or two about the road systems out there and who's on them. Uh, Howard, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. It's great to be on your show. Not at all. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, we've been finding out over the course of the last few days, really, um, about what the truth is to uh, this particular problem that we have currently. I know a lot of it has to do with people rushing to petrol stations when they really shouldn't be doing it. Um, People do behave in strange ways when they think there's going to be a shortage of something. And because there isn't really a shortage of something, and because there isn't really a shortage of HGV drivers, it seems to me we need to address why there is a lack of um, transportation and it's got nothing to do with people. It's got everything to do with red tape, it seems to me. You've got it spot on. And I'd like to nominate for a plank of the century, the Department <laughs> for Transport. Uh, and, and I'm deadly serious about that. I mean, the government are fully to blame for not acting quickly enough. Um, for the last 15 years, my backers, the Road Hoarders Association and the Logistics UK, formerly known as the Freight Transport Association, have been shouting at every single transport minister about this uh, catastrophic position we've now reached, whereby the HGG driver situation. But the, the, the issue is the virtual signalling, we're putting the military on standby. We just need 100 more drivers. The tankers are full up at every refinery. They can be delivered now. We just need HGV drivers, bums on seats, get them to them, even with a police escort if necessary to get them through the queues. And let's get it sorted. And if they did that in two days, we'd be completely clear of the problem. Yeah, I mean, we're hearing stories today of people pulling knives on petrol station forecourts. We've seen punch ups. There's a woman apparently selling 10 litres of petrol for 50 quid uh, on Facebook. I mean, people have gone mad, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a minority. You, but the point is, Grant Shapp stood up three or four days ago and said, don't panic. Right. And what do we all do? We, it's like the toilet roll crisis in COVID. You know uh, better than anyone, Mike, this, as, you know, people are like lemmings. They would do this. And you can't really blame them because they've got to get to work. There's carers. The only thing is there are the idiots, like, for example, a, a garage owner sent me a receipt of a person who filled up for 90p after queuing for about six hours. I mean, why are you, why are you doing that? I mean, that is just bonkers, isn't it? It is, it's bonkers, it's stupid, it's ridiculous. And if and the rationing idea, I'm afraid, is a good idea. If everyone just put a half a tank in or even a third of a tank, that would be enough for everyone to get by. And then in two days' time, they can replenish yeah. it. Well, surely it'd be quite straightforward and simple, would it not? I mean, I went to a place, as I've, I've told several people already, uh, where they had a £30 maximum. Um, but even there, they were saying, because I managed to put an extra 22 pence in by mistake, you know. Um, and I said, look, I'm sorry about that. I'll put an extra 22p in. And they went, don't worry. I hope you feel guilty, by Well, listen, um, and, I, and they said, well, people have been putting in 60 and said they made a mistake. And I mean, people just don't stick to it. But if you had a minimum of 20 and a maximum of 30, I reckon you'd solve this by lunchtime. You've got it spot on, and it really, and they can also limit the pumps. They can actually make it so you can't go past thirty. Right, it, especially the electronic digital ones. Maybe the old-fashioned ones. No, I accept that. But please, can we not get away from the fact the government have caused this? And as you say, the bureaucrats behind the scene. You know, the HGV driver shortage of a hundred thousand isn't the reason why we're having problems at the pumps. It, the reason is because of the scaremongering by the government, mm. and they're blaming everyone except themselves. They're blaming COVID. They're blaming Brexit. They're blaming the RHA for leaks. All sorts of things are going. Going on, it's very firmly down in their court, and they could solve this. Get those hundred military guys out there who are professionals in moving the fuel. They don't need incredible training or special certificates. Get them out there. Get the police to support those tankers to get them through to every garage in the country. 
But I mean, I think we are seeing the, the, the ramifications from COVID, particularly in the public sector, like the DVLA, where nobody's working in the office. They're all working from home. Everything's taking an age to get through the DVLA. I've got a, t- a, test, a tweet here from Philip who says, what about all the driving instructors who specialise in trailer tests? They now have lost all their customer base as they have just handed everyone the licence upgrade to free up examiners. You can now pass your driving test and tow a caravan straight after with no training. You know, yeah. I mean, these are not good decisions that are being made. Absolutely. But it all comes back to the government making those decisions, isn't it? They're the ones that are doing it. Get them back to work. Get them into the office. They're not going to catch COVID. You're absolutely right. 80% of the reason for this is all down to the government. The other 20% is split with all the other things, but they exacerbate it rather than cause it. Yeah, absolutely right. So, I mean, as far as you're concerned, Howard, I mean, this will all be over in a few days, probably no matter what happens, because people simply can't continue to fill up their cars uh, and not driving them and then need petrol again for a long time. But, you know, again, it's this short termism that government seems to deal with where they don't really have a plan. They just kind of react to events, don't they? Well, that's what they're that's what they're good at. I mean, they haven't the, the word long term is not in their, in their mentality. I mean, let's face it. Do you think Boris Johnson's going to be around in 2030 when we're not allowed to buy diesel or petrol cars? Well, he thinks he's going to be. He wants to have the legacy longer than Margaret Thatcher. I mean, he seems to be under the misapprehension that he's still a popular prime minister. Well, I, I, I'm, I regret what I did when I actually wrote in several newspapers at the time of the election that the Conservatives and Boris is the driver's friend. I couldn't have been further from the truth. I've, I'm so regretting that completely. And I've got a lot of backbench Tory MPs supporting me on that fact. And, and of course, what's happening now, and this is really what I'm really concerned about, uh, is the profiteering that's going on. I'm seeing ridiculous amounts of people being taken for a ride. One garage, for example, a guy was sitting in a garage queue and it was 139, which is about 3p above the average for petrol. By the time he got to fill up, it was went up to 152. And that was on the petrol that was already paid for by the retailer. Yeah. It wasn't extra uh, deliveries. And what, how it's, it's such opportunity. I'm about to write an article for The Sun tomorrow about this profiteering. And that's what the government should get on top of as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I think we should all remember that Boris Johnson was the mayor in London who brought in the Boris bikes. You know, So let's not remember him as some kind of great friend of the driver, because actually uh, the only time you used to see him was on his own bike, didn't you? Well, bear in mind, I was comparing him to Jeremy Corbyn at the time. Uh, so, <laughs> Well, he wasn't anybody's friend, apart from some bloke in Venezuela. <laughs> yeah, but Venezuela, you can buy petrol and diesel for a penny a litre. Uh, well, you can, but then their oil business went bust, didn't it? So, I mean, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's correct. Mike. I mean, that, that is that is the problem. But I mean, again, you know, we've got an energy crisis. We've got a fuel crisis. We've got uh, shortages being predicted for Christmas, you know, and you're kind of going, can we not just sort this all out? It doesn't seem to be that difficult to do. Well, I'm afraid I've got to say this. I've got to put the blame back on the government and their instructions to the civil servants. Get them back to work. Get this sorted. Get these hundred just for one week, maybe two weeks. Get the military to help uh, uh, drive those tankers, which are sitting there full up at refineries, ready to go to to garages. If they did that now and stop saying this thing about they're on standby. What the hell does that mean? It's virtual signaling BS. Right. Yeah, well, they're either working or they're not working, it seems to me. Um, And it seems to me an awful lot of people are still not working. I mean, I spoke to a a lorry driver yesterday who said the people in his company that he drives for are still on furlough. So there's actually drivers available, but they're on furlough. Yeah, well, that's the problem. Well, furlough is supposedly stopped this month, isn't it? I I thought. But anyway, but your point is very valid. It's meant to stop, I think, in two days' time. But at at this very moment in time, there are still thousands of drivers on furlough. 
Well, then obviously in two days' time, the solution is solved, isn't it? The problem, I mean, the private sector cannot be, are not blameless. I mean, they could actually get the training sorted out, but the government is stopping the training courses. They're stopping the licenses, the HGV license passing through. And then they got this stupid idea about a temporary visas for 5,000 EU drivers to come over for three months. So what incentive is that for someone to come over mm. and drive for three months? What well, else stupid, unless they're doubling their salaries. And how would they integrate into... Yeah, in, but also... Into, but also, Howard, one, there's a shortage of drivers in Europe as well anyway, so I don't know where they're going to come from. Yes. But but also, two, the reason that drivers in this country are quite happy with the situation is that the reason that uh, Brexit happened for them was so that you could drive up the wages for British drivers and people working in this country. And that's what's happened. So to, to bring back in people who are going to work for less money is madness. Well, uh, well, <laughs> it's no common sense whatsoever. The only place it is in talk radio, we know, but common sense is completely and utterly missing from this government. And I'm sick to death of it. I've got 1.7 million supporters. I've um, probably had 40,000 emails in mm. the last week, all of them saying the same thing. This government has let us down completely. And the, and the crisis is down to them. It's at their door. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We'll look forward to reading your piece in the sun tomorrow, Howard. Thanks very much indeed. Howard Cox, uh, their founder of Fair Fuel UK, also talking common sense. Well, never mind. You can always take the train, can't you? Because if you can't get any fuel, just use public transport. Ah, but hang on a minute. Southeastern have just been stripped of their rail franchise. What does that mean? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The problem is that the Southeastern uh, franchise has been stripped from Southeastern. They've taken it off them. The government have taken it away because of £25 million shortfall uh, in some form uh, of good faith problem that they've had with them. Let's find out what that's all about with Bruce Williamson uh, from Rail Futures. Bruce, very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. So um, I'm a bit puzzled as to what this actually means. Uh, they're saying that Southeastern has not declared over 25 million of historic taxpayer funding, which should have been returned. Does this mean that basically they've taken money as a kind of stipend that they should have given back and they haven't given it back? Yeah, that's pretty much exactly it. Yeah, they've been overpaid in, in very, very simple terms. I think this relates in some ways to... Uh, services on high speed one there was possibly some sort of subsidy i mean i can't get to the bottom of the you know the the nitty-gritty of the details here yeah. but yeah they've been overpaid they've been found out and they've been busted right. basically well that sounds rather dishonest to me that is that not some kind of criminal offense uh possibly yeah i mean they, they say they've paid the money back it may be that uh having stripped them of their franchise the government considers that to be punishment enough right but they <clears throat> excuse me um, <clears throat> There may be a case, I really don't know, for some sort of criminal proceedings against this, because clearly, you know, ripping the government off to the tune of tens of millions of pounds, it's a, it's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, that's the job of the uh, the tax people, really, ripping off the government, isn't it? So, I mean, the railway shouldn't be doing it. Um, what does it mean for the, uh, for the passengers, then, the people with, uh, more significantly, I suppose, with season tickets? Well, the good news is that the, the passengers won't notice any difference at all. They'll be... It'll uh, still be crap, in other words. Seat. I'm sorry? I said it will still be rubbish, in other words. Well, if, if that's your experience of, uh, of South Eastern, then yes. I'm yeah, it's the reason I bought... A, it's, I mean, <laughs> South Eastern, the reason I bought a car. Oh, right. OK, well, I'm sorry to hear that, you know, because obviously it's my job to, to promote rail. Some some services are better than others. Yeah. But, yeah, season tickets will continue to be valid. It will be sort of rolled over, uh, hopefully seamlessly, into a, into a state-run operation, as has happened with Northern... Um, I can't remember the other one, but, yeah, it's... it's uh, LNER, it's... It, um, there are already two other railways running under this state uh, operator of last resort, they right. call it. So the trains keep running. 
So the trains will keep running, but it's not good news, is it, for the future of the train business? Because presumably, if you don't have um, a company running it, you really don't have anybody investing in the future of it in terms of rolling stock, in terms of making sure that the service is improving, uh, making sure that, you know, the staff are looked after. Does it mean anything for the staff, for instance? Well, I, I'm not sure I agree with that, because we've got to remember that, you know, even under franchising, the railways were run pretty much by the government. So it's the government that makes those investments decisions about rolling stuff and so on and the experience seems to be that you know lmer is a really good example it failed three times under the private sector and when it was temporarily run by the state the services actually seem to improve slightly so I, I, i'm confident it won't get worse okay that way. all right but then that would beg the question if that's the case then why doesn't the government just run everything and forget about giving out franchises well, you'll have to ask the government now. I mean, we know that franchising is dead in its old form. Uh, so what's happening now is that all the train operating companies are running on a fixed uh, fixed price contract. So the ticket revenue for all train operators goes straight to the Department for Transport. Right. And um, and that's the way it will, will stay. I'm pretty confident about that. You know, okay. that, that COVID forced the issue, but franchising was dying anyway. And we're also seeing this introduction of this this overarching body, Great British Railways, to to sort of supervise the whole of the running of the railways, one big umbrella group. So some people could see that as as a a gradual return to to renationalisation, which I think is is happening. Yes, I've got the feeling that's kind of on the cards as well. Good to talk to you, Bruce. Thanks very much indeed, Bruce Williamson from from the campaign group Rail Futures on the news uh, that basically uh, the South Eastern Railway Company. Um, has been squirrelling away money um, in what sounds like a bit of an illegal situation. 25 million quid. They're saying they gave it back. The government's saying they didn't. They've been stripped of their franchise. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, I'm very excited to tell you that we are doing Plank of the Week this afternoon, but we're doing it in a slightly bigger, bolder and better way. And we're doing it with two new people uh, who are, you are very familiar with, but who have not yet actually ever done Plank of the Week. One is Richard Tice and the other one is Tonya Buxton. So we're looking forward to that very much. That should be out tomorrow, uh, all things being equal. Right now, though, let's have a word with Professor Carol Sakura, Medical Director of Rutherford Cancer Centre's founding dean of the University of Buckingham uh, Medical Centre as well. Carol, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, Mike. Now, I understand that you're out and about, so if you see any petrol queues, <laughs> do tell me, because we're trying to get a sort of a grip on what's going on. It seems to be very regionally based at the moment, from what we can gather. Yeah. I live in west of London, Beaconsfield up the A40. They're all shut here. Oh, There's are they? Queues. So what, they're all, cl- they're all, they've all run out? They've all run out. Yeah, it's, I, it's I mean, the worst, tragedy, really. the worst news I'm hearing, and, and this will come as no surprise to you, is that some, apparently some places are charging over £2 a litre now because they've worked out that they can actually make a great deal of money out of the situation i know exploitation complete exploitation of a public that really there was no reason for this i mean it's not like there's an earthquake or there's a war going on or there's anything it's completely predictable i know it's just unbelievable it really is almost as predictable as making sure that if you put uh, social distancing measures into a hospital you won't be able to get as many people into it that's right. And the two measures announced yesterday uh, includes reducing the social distancing from two metres to one metre, which is fair. And normally we're one metre in hospitals, and yes. that's not a problem. Uh, and the second one is the deep cleaning. 
which was done on a regular basis and now will be done uh, less regularly as far as I can see. But th- this is just a cosmetic change, Mike. Mm. I mean, if, if you actually think of it as a factory, you've got 100 operations to do in a day. Um, there'll be eye operations, hip operations and so on. So say a hospital does 100. How is that going to help you speed that up? And that's the problem. There are six, there are 5.6 million people on a waiting list. I reckon the waiting list is actually nearer 10 million. Yeah. And it's not being disclosed how many people are really waiting. No. Uh, and that's the fifth of the population. If you look at a crowd of people, one in five is actually on a waiting list from the NHS. Uh, you know, imagine if it was a, a train or mm. a, a plane ticket you had. And... You know, OK, COVID's been and it's it's going. So we've got to get back to normal just as quickly as possible for the sake of everybody's health. Well, we really do. And as well as, as, as of course, the social distancing that we know of that's going on in hospitals, and I'm glad to see that that will be coming to an end sooner rather than later, it's still going on in, in uh, GP surgeries, I'm told, because every time we do the story, we still get calls from people who say they're still not letting us in, they're still not uh, having any chairs or, or, or furniture at all in the waiting rooms, you can't go inside... You know, this has got to stop, hasn't it? It has. I mean, if you look at the railways, they've adapted. They're running more trains and you can get on the commuter train. Okay, it's not as busy as it used to be, but it's still pretty full. Mm. And so people want to get back to work. And, uh, you know, it's not causing a a spurt of infection. In fact, the number of people going to hospital is is dropping all the time. It's about 700 a day at the moment. That's fallen from about 1,000 two weeks ago. So all the graphs are going exactly the right way, not like the prediction from Imperial that we saw where there were going to be uh, you know, 20,000 people in hospital. There are actually only 5,000, 6,000 people in hospital with COVID. Yeah. So it, it's really not that impinging on, on total health care at the moment. No, I was going to ask you what, what, what it's like uh, in, in your experience of going to hospitals and obviously seeing patients, whether there is um, a relative lag going on, whether there is a, a sort of catch-up going on, whether people are being seen quicker, whether it is getting busier in the hospitals. It doesn't sound like it is really. No, I think what's been interesting, we've grabbed the distance consultation and we've been talking about it for years, for something like cancer follow-up, not for new patients, but for cancer follow-up where you're seeing people every three months, you're doing blood tests, maybe a scan of some sort, and if that's all right. Well, people, if you know the person, if you know the patient and they know you, you can do it on the phone or on a Zoom call. If you don't know the patient, if it's someone with new symptoms, new problems, you can't. You have to see them, really, and examine them. So it's a matter of getting that balance. We have learned how to use that, but I'm afraid, as you say, general practice, they seem to be using it as the the first line is you have to email in what's wrong with you or to fill in a a page on a website, Mm. what's wrong with you. Now, that's okay for me and you. But if, if I was in my 90s, I'd struggle to do that, I think. And I wouldn't even know what's wrong with me, you know? No, I think that's the problem. I mean, a lot of elderly people who are not particularly savvy on, on, on new media or they don't have a computer, they can't get on the internet, you know, they've really lost at the moment. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, if you look at how general practice is structured, the number of people that go there, the, the two peak ages are young children you know, with spots, rashes and temperatures, and the parents are very anxious, quite rightly to be anxious about yeah. it. And then the elderly who go back with multiple problems and multiple times. So if you're catering for a predominantly older population, you have to adapt the way into it. And the real problem with the NHS at the moment is access to it. Once yes. you get in it, it can pick you up. But if you can't, it's, you struggle to get in. 
Yes, it's making that first move, isn't it, into the system. And then once you're in the system, I'm, I'm told the system has got better at recommending you on to the next part of it, you know? That, that's right. And emergency rooms are not the place. They're the most expensive place for relatively minor problems that are not urgent for people to go to because they're staffed 24-7 with a lot of expertise and on-call expertise in brain surgery and trauma surgery and so on. And you know, if all you've got is a hernia or a hip that needs replaced, there's no point going there because it's just wasteful. Yes. But people are because they're so frustrated with their GP. No. So I think we have to change something. I think so. And what's uh, going on with the testing uh, regime as well? Because I'm assuming that the people who work in the NHS are getting tested on a relatively you know, frequent basis, maybe twice a week or something like that. And are they then still being sent home uh, if it turns out that they test positive, uh, even though they don't have symptoms? Are they still being sent home if they've been near somebody who tested positive? Because one of the other issues in hospitals right now, I believe, uh, is a shortage of staff because they're not there. That's right. And, you know, it, it, it's genuine. People are testing and that if they're positive, they don't come in. Uh, we check everybody's temperature before they come through the door. There's one door into our cancer centre and your temperature is checked. If you're a patient before you start treatment, you have a, a proper PCR test. Uh, staff are tested twice a week with a lateral flow test, which mm. is the 15 minute one. It's simple, self-administered, uh, a bit painful on the nose, but uh, we're all used to it now. I mean, I remember one week where I was tested about 20 times in the same week and I've had my nose was really sore. Huh. And uh, uh, we don't need to do it that often. And, no. Uh, it, it is coming to an end and it will, people will start relaxing. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the infection people, my colleagues, are very insisting that we keep testing for the moment. Mm. I'm not quite sure why. I don't know whether you're familiar with the story from Denmark. But Denmark's basically now um, give, done, done away with all their testing centres. They say that they're not testing well people now at all. If you've got symptoms, then take a test. And, if, and they're also saying that if you have been in contact with someone who has tested positive, you're no longer required to go uh, and self-isolate. I know. It's, it's, it's bewildering. Uh, compared with all that fuss, I mean, I, I went somewhere uh, in the summer to Abu Dhabi for work, and yes. uh, you know the, the fuss about that. You know, it's uh, or testing people, phoning you up to make sure you're in your house, and, and this sort of thing. Uh, uh, it's uh, that's sort of all going now. Uh, but well, it seems very hit and miss, doesn't it? I mean, I've spoken to many people who went away on holiday. Some of them um, had people knocking on their door to make sure they were staying in when they were supposed to. Others um, came back, didn't even bother sending the test that they were meant to do, the two-day test in, and nobody bothered them. No, uh, that's quite right. And I, I, I got colleagues that exactly that. They didn't bother because they just couldn't be bothered. And uh, what happens? Nothing. Uh, so, uh, But it is coming to an end. And as it comes to an end, we've got to adapt the health service, the transport services, the international travel. To The problem with international travel is two countries involved, and they're not necessarily on the same page with COVID. Mm. And, and they, they have disagreements, and their scientific advisors have different views on it. And that's why you get sort of strange things happening out there. But it's interesting. Countries that want tourists break the rules to get tourists there. You know, the, the, the Balearic Islands, Ibiza and so on, they want tourists. That's their bread and butter. Right. They, they can't afford another summer. Well, that's it. Nobody. So they, they encourage people and the checks are very light.
Yes, exactly right. And what about this other study that came in, uh, which is a study from the Office for National Statistics, in which it said that only 2% of people who never wear a mask were found to have caught COVID. I find that quite a fascinating um, figure, which hardly anybody's done anything with. Uh, The mask business is very interesting. I don't wear a mask on the train. Mm. uh, I'd better not say what I do on the tube because that would be illegal if I didn't wear a mask. But certainly on the trains, I don't wear a mask. Well, they haven't. No, I don't think they can enforce it on the tube. They tried to, but it's. I don't wear a mask on the tube. Oh well, in that case, I don't wear a mask. There you go. (laughs) We admit that we're criminals. Well, we're not. Certainly not. We are freedom fighters. I think we call exactly. And anyone can say they're exempt. You don't have to go to the doctor to be exempt. You do self-declaration. I am exempt. Right. I am a man, not a girl. I am exempt. Exactly. And no one can ask you why. Uh, it, it's it's the strangest, strangest rule. Yes. And it's clearly not being policed anymore because they realise they, they can't do anything about it. They can't put you in handcuffs and drag you off to the police station no. if you're not wearing a mask. Well, they, only and, in Australia they do that. Well, look what's yeah. happened to them. I mean, that's shocking, think, isn't it, what's going on down there? It, it, it really, and bringing the army in to help the police c- capture people. Yeah. It's uh, not, not a good business. It really isn't. I've got a nice message for you, though. You'll enjoy this because I know that you've has suffered the slings and arrows from various points <laughs> over the course of the last year. Vic says this. Mikey says, can you please take this opportunity to thank Carol, who has done sterling work over the last 18 months in being an exceptional voice of reason proportion uh, in this alarmist mad world. So there we are. <laughs> There you know, you know, nice. you know, it's all worthwhile. So, as far as um, your kind of your your backup is concerned in terms of the cancer business, Carol, are you able to 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 say that you've started catching up a little bit with people's treatment? We have. The block is getting the first operation. So, mm. we, I, I'm not a surgical oncologist. So I do radiotherapy and chemotherapy. So, the block's not there. The block's before that. So, if someone with colon cancer needs a colon removed before they start post-operative care with radiotherapy and surgery, um, that's where the delays are. Right. And, and then the diagnostic delays are huge, and that's because you know the, the CT scanners and MR scanners and the endoscopy suites where you, you put tubes into people's mouths and up their bottoms, they're full and, uh, because of the backlog. And so we've got to get through that quickly, encourage people and pay them to work at weekends just to get through. Uh, I'm afraid the social distancing is neither here nor there. It's not going to speed things up, really. Mm. Um, It will allow more people to go onto a ward. You're right with that. But uh, that's not the limitation. The limiting factor is staff, uh, expert staff, not just the, 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 the key guy or lady, but the whole team approach, which is so necessary, the anaesthetists, the technicians, the, uh, the people with cardiac surgery, the people that man the, 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 the artificial heart, the pumps and so on. It, it's highly skilled stuff. You can't whistle up more people tomorrow by phoning up an agency and getting a few people around. So it, it's a matter of trying to make everything much more efficient. And that would be good for the NHS if we produce this as a way of making it much more efficient. It doesn't need that much more money. We no. just need to, to look at how we can get innovative pathways and get rid of that claptrap about equality and diversity. You know, quite frankly, if you run a perfect service, a good service, but customer friendly, it doesn't matter what colour or creed you are, you can use it. Uh, There's no point spending away days talking about that. Better than how do we get a streamlined pathway for all? Basically. Well, exactly right. I mean, I'm not terribly confident, I have to say, Professor, that, that any of the money that they're going to be collecting from national insurance as of next April is going to find its way into the NHS at all. I think that, that's right. And, you know, every year I do my appraisal, I have to do mandatory training and various things that 
it's just political niceties mm. of it all. What they need to train, what we all need to be trained is how to make pathways more efficient. How can we do more with the same resources? And I think you, and to be incentivized to do that. And that's not what happens. Sure, you get overtime if you work at a weekend, but it's not just that. We could do more during the course of a normal workday. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Well, Professor, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Carol Segura there, Medical Director of Rutherford Cancer Centre's founding dean of the University of Buckingham Medical Centre. Finally, the NHS has seen some sense. Finally, they've actually decided to stop the social distancing measures in hospitals so that they can get more beds into the wards. Well, that's good news, but I'm sure it probably does not uh, actually translate to GP surgeries yet because as much as the BMA has been busy over the last 24 hours telling us that we should all get out of the way and make sure that you know emergency workers can get to the petrol pumps before everybody else uh, because it's a very very valid and, and important job that they do that's all fine and dandy but what they won't do is tell all the GPs and the doctors to go back to work so they can see more and more patients that should be the point shouldn't it <laughs> 